This inspiring message comes to you from Impact Church in Kingston, Ontario, where we are committed to living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. There's something very unique about an open heaven over a region and over a, a, a church, over a city, over a nation, over the world. Because once there's an open heaven, the only thing that can block it is us. How much you receive, how much you are open to what God wants to do in and through your life. And I want to declare this morning that there's an open heaven. There's an open heaven. We have stepped into an open heaven this year. I was thinking about this this morning, that when there's an open heaven and there's a process that God is bringing to our church and to our lives, one of the things that's a little bit um, nerve-wracking is, what can God do? We start asking the questions, God, what do you want to do in our lives, and what does that look like, and what does that mean? And most of us uh, struggle with an open heaven, not because our desire isn't for God, but it's the fear of the unknown. What does that look like? What are you going to ask of me? What do you want to do through my life? Am I going to be like that Cameron guy that looks crazy every time God touches him? What are we going to do with that? And I believe my assignment this morning is to show you once and for all what Jesus paid to bring an open heaven. And that our life and our lifestyles without the presence of God in it is living far below what Jesus paid for us. And so what I want you to do this morning is I want you to raise your sights and raise your faith and raise the standard of your belief system today to actually believe God that you can walk in every single thing that he's paid for for you not in the sweet hereby and by when we die, but here and now, heaven on earth. Some of you are like, well, yeah, yeah, I know that sounds like a great idea. I want you to drop your, oh, that sounds like a great idea thought. I want you to drop any thought or any pattern or any process, any regret, any disappointment in the past, and I want you to come fresh this morning. And believe God that this is a new day, a new season, and God can do new things. Do you believe that this morning? In your bulletin this morning was just another copy of our Revival Series diagram. If you were not here last week, I want to encourage you to listen to the message because I talked in detail about the diagram, what it means, what it represents. I, I kind of undid a little bit of uh, some of our misunderstanding about revival. Um, I really solidified, hopefully, what revival is really all about and what it encompasses and the fact that revival is never meant to be a song, a moment, a geographical location, a preacher, uh, a sermon, um, uh, anything like that. It's Jesus Christ incarnate and it's Jesus in our life and it's Jesus in us desiring to revive our heart and then extend the kingdom of God on the earth. That's what it's all about. If we just feel good for a moment, but we leave this place and we don't do anything about it, then I would, I would say to you that that's actually not revival. What that is, is a really cool, nice moment with you and the Lord that stopped with you and the Lord. But what he wants in our lives is that we would take what he does and he would allow the overflow in our lives 
to get onto every single person around us, every situation around us. Can you imagine if you walked into every single place and every single room, and the moment you walked into the room, the atmosphere changed? Imagine your lunchrooms at work. I'm not so far removed from a secular job that I don't remember those days. I remember being in my lunchroom and going, the first six months I was in there going, Lord Jesus, please make another room just for me. Because <laughs> I didn't want to be in there. All you heard for half an hour was everyone's issues and everyone's problems and everyone's this. And then one moment I had a moment in my office as I was praying and the Lord said, why don't you be the change maker instead of complaining about him? I went. That was my next thought, Lord. Thank you for reminding me. That's what I was going to do. But there's a shift that happens when we go from just wanting the presence to ourselves to desiring to be a conduit. Where we're tapped into the supernatural from heaven and as a conduit it comes out of our lives. And that's ultimately what this series is all about. If you can narrow it down to one thing, revival is to revive your heart, to bring the presence of God in your life in order for you to be a conduit and extend the kingdom of God wherever you go. That's it. So if it only involves one thing, we're missing revival. It's not revival. And that's where most revivalists have gone wrong. They're looking for the one moment. And the one moment was never meant to be a moment. It's meant to be a movement. Big difference. But we long for moments and God longs for movements. Big difference. Right? All three of us are there. That's good. All right. I'm going to start with a verse this morning that has struck a chord in me all week, and I'm just going to read it. It's Isaiah 57, uh, verse 14 and 15. It says, God says, rebuild the road. Rebuild the road. Some of you have got a road and a path behind you that you're not too proud of. It's okay. It's time to rebuild it. Clear away the rocks and stones so my people can return from captivity. If you want to know more about that phrase right there, just listen to Pastor Gary's message from two weeks ago. The high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one, says this, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. That word revival that we talked about is actually the Old Testament word revive, and it literally means to refresh, to revitalize, to bring to life again. That's the heart of God for this particular issue. And that is literally the heart of this whole series. So if you can look at that diagram for a second, what we're going to do kind of systematically over the next number of weeks, and we don't have a timeline on this. So we're going to finish when the Lord wants us to finish. So I don't know when that is. Originally it was going to be month, uh, month of January, but I already know that that's been wrecked, so I'm just going to keep going. So um, we may go to Easter. Who knows? I don't know what we're going to do. But we're just going to keep going if that's all right with you. But what my assignment is today is to talk about that first level, that open heaven. I'm going to talk a little bit about it again next week, and we're going to take two weeks kind of on each area, and then we're going to expand into kingdom talk for the last couple of weeks. But what I want to say to you this morning is God's heart this morning is not only to revive, but there's a word that's used in Isaiah 57 that captured my heart, and it's the word restore. It says, I want to restore the crushed spirit. You have to know this morning that it doesn't matter where you've been through in this last year, it doesn't matter what you've gone through, it doesn't matter what circumstance that either choices you've made or the things that the enemy has put upon you, God wants to restore a crushed spirit today. That's what open heavens do. It restores a crushed spirit. But this word restore is interesting. When you look at it in the original Hebrew, it actually means to bring back to its original intent and then trumpet. Make it even better. 
So it's not just to go back to the original. It's actually to make it better than the original. How many want that? Right? So some of you have got family situations that you, you, it's crushed you. Some of you, it's financial. Some of you, it's health. Some of you, it's whatever. You, have, you just fill in the blank for whatever that thing is. But it has crushed your spirit. What's it talking about? It's, it's robbing you of hope. It's robbing you of joy. It's robbing you of peace. I think every single one of us in this room right now could say, yeah, I, know, I, I know of a situation like that. But God is saying, I want to restore. The whole theme of an open heaven is that God, in his infinite wisdom and his love for humanity, wants to restore the original plan back to humanity. To walk with God in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. Original plan. I don't know about you, but I could take that. How many want a little bit of that? Amen? That's what it's all about. On your diagram, and I talked about this a little bit last week, that open heaven really speaks to God's omnipresence. But I want to talk about two different, uh, I guess, types of presence. His omnipresence is very simple. It means God is everywhere. Doesn't matter where you go. He's going to find you. Psalm 139 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. That's his omnipresence. God is everywhere. But there's a second level, or there's a second type, or a second form of his presence that I'm going to call the manifest presence of God. It's not where God is everywhere, but it's when God is here. Right? All right. You're thankful for that? So that's what I'm believing that God wants to restore. He wants to restore, if I can be so bold, the Garden of Eden. He wants to restore Eden to his people. Not the physical place, but the principles in which we live. The way in which we live. I mean, Eden sounds like a pretty nice place, so maybe he wants to restore the actual physical place too. That'd be cool. For those that love your geography, it's actually found somewhere in ancient Mesopotamia, somewhere in modern Iraq. That's where it was found. I don't know why so many wars have happened there. Maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. But I want to share with you five key thoughts about the presence of God this morning, about that manifest presence of God in, in hopes of simplifying things, but at the same time expanding your faith and expanding your hope for, that, for the plan and purpose of God for your life. So the first thought is very simple. The Bible begins and ends with the presence of God. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. Then he spoke, boom, creation happened. Six days he created, seventh day he rested. Always had my mind made up thinking, God, if you rested on a day, it's probably good for us to do the same. That's just a little nugget. Anyhow, um, but the Garden of Eden, Eden literally means paradise. It means paradise. One version, it says it's delightful paradise. But I love that. It's paradise. I don't know about you, but as soon as you hear the word paradise, you keep thinking of everything that you can't attain or you can't get to. But God is saying, I want to restore paradise. I want to restore that thought and that process and that ideology and philosophy to your thinking and to your heart. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So he placed Adam, and obviously we know the rest of the story, that he also placed Eve, um, Adam and Eve, within that garden, within the Garden of Eden. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, it literally talks about them walking with God in the cool of the day. That would be awesome. 
that would trump Siri. Like, totally. Like, Siri's there, yeah. But God is right there with you. Can you imagine if you went into any situation, any, any situation in your life, and he was right there? Like, tag team God in. Okay, you just take over, Lord, because they'll listen to you. I know they won't listen to me, but they'll listen to you. And God looks at it and says, no, it's not my turn. I already did that. It's your turn. I'm going to be here, though. Like, but God, how do I do that? It's all right. I've already removed the rocks. Yeah, but what happens if they throw them at me? It's all right. Stephen came and be, be, you know, was with me quicker that way. That's all good. He says, yeah, but I don't want to die like that. It's better than a shark. I don't want to die that way either. Lord, I just want your presence. And what he's saying to you this morning is that his presence is here. Not just the omnipresence of God. The God is everywhere, but the manifest presence of God. God is here. Right now. Amen? Oh, I love it. But what was amazing about this experience in the Garden of Eden was it was also God's sanctuary. It wasn't just the place where Adam and Eve lived. It was God's sanctuary. It was his home. It was his haven. It was literally the garden where the creator and the creation lived in perfect harmony, in perfect peace, and in perfect presence. Nothing messed it up. That was God's heart from the very beginning. His heart has never changed. No matter what you see you're going through, no matter what circumstances you've gone through, his heart for you has never changed. It's never changed. You know, you fast forward to the end of the Bible, book of Revelation, and we see a very similar picture, except on a much larger scale. I'm going to read it. Revelation chapter 21, it says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What a gift. I like that. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, the sanctuary of God, another version says, is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. From the beginning of the book until the end of the book, his heart has never changed. The problem is all these stuff in between. But his heart is that we would live in the presence of God. Where everybody enjoys his presence continually and eternally. So the first thought is, is the Bible ends or begins and ends with the presence of God. Why is that an important point? Because you have to understand that, that literally that is the blueprint of the Trinity for humanity. That's the blueprint. His presence. That he would walk with us, that he would walk among us. The second thought is this. Humanity's mission and the presence of God are inseparable. In other words, you cannot do the mission of Christ without the presence of God. If not, the only thing you got going is your smarts against someone else's. And I got news for you. It's just a matter of time before you find someone smarter than you. And that's not to discount your, your awesomeness. But the reality is, is we cannot outsmart anybody. Now, somebody would say, well, do you, are you against apologetics? Absolutely not. I would say this. If we have a tool, use it. If we've got an opportunity to train that way, use it. God can use anyone. Ravi Zacharias has messed my thinking in the last 20 years. I'm telling you right now. 
and the way that he deals with situations, he disarms them intellectually and then comes in with a counter punch that blows them away. So if that's your call in life, be the best apologist you've ever been. But I also have news for you today that the pattern in the, Old, in the New Testament under, the, uh, under the, you know, the presence of God, under the unction of the Holy Spirit, under the work of the Holy Spirit, was that it was a power gospel brought about by signs and wonders following. And I don't know about you, but in Canada, I don't see that happening a lot. And it bothers me. I remember going to a, a church planners conference about eight or nine years ago, and some of you may have heard of this guy, Francis Chan, who I love his stuff. He's awesome. Um, but Francis Chan stood up at a Southern Baptist Convention's church planning convention. 3,500 delegates stood up on stage, stood there in front of everyone, got silent at the beginning, and everyone's just anticipating what Francis Chan is about to say. And he said, guys, I want to share with you this something this morning that, that may shock you, but I'm grieved this morning. And I went... If you know Francis Chan, he's the nicest, softest, gentlest, fun-loving guy you'll ever hear. He's just so soft and gentle. Even when he says something hard, it's like, I just feel so loved. He's so nice. You know, that's what he's like. And he stood up there in front of 3,500 people, of which most were from the Southern Baptist Convention, and he said, I'm grieved. And you could just hear this holy hush that landed in the room. And he goes, I have a problem with the book of Acts. Not because I don't like the book of Acts, but because our fellowship and my ministry and everything I've been around has avoided it. And that time's over. So, what I want to do with my life and in my ministry, my call from this moment on is to live the book of Acts. And I was sitting there, Sandra and I were sitting there going, are you hearing what I'm hearing? I think I'm hearing what you're hearing. That is awesome. And we're the little Pentecostals sitting in like the 17th row going, keep your enthusiasm down. Because <laughs> inside of me was a, <laughs> yeah, whoa, yeah, Jesus, come on. Everyone get off your feet. That's what I was thinking on the inside. But I just had to sit there going. Jesus, take the wheel. Take it from my hand. And Sandra, you can just feel, because she gets excited, and she's like, like about ready to go off the launch pad. She's sitting there on the seat going, oh. She's just going. She's so excited. She's so excited, and she's just feeling like something's about to happen. And then the scariest thing happened. He didn't even get into a message. He opened the altars, and 2,000 people responded. They had nowhere to put them. They're on stage. They're across the stage. They're up the aisles. They're out the side rooms. They're in the side aisles. They were all the way back to the back of the church sanctuary. And for those who want to know how big the church was, it was 7,000 seat church. First Baptist Church of Orlando. Huge. And we were sitting there going, this is awesome. What happened? Open heaven. Manifest presence. God restoring what was lost. God restoring what was lost in Eden. Humanity's mission and the presence of God are inseparable. I just want to look at the mission for a second. Genesis chapter 1. 
It says, then God said, let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness, let them have dominion. Say dominion. Okay, we understand that well, because we've been called the dominion of Canada. We are not called the republic. We're not, a, we're not any of those other things. We are the dominion of Canada. Okay? We would have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Can I put a, a, a revival series phrase on it? Extend the kingdom. Extend the kingdom. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Interesting, he didn't just say fill the earth. He said subdue it too. Why? Because he knew what was going to happen. The entire purpose of the presence of God was to be a catalyst for us to rule and reign on the earth and to subdue that which would fight against God. That was the original purpose of mankind. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 2.15 Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it, to look after it. The plan for Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and multiply in order to fill the earth and have dominion over it. They were to do that from Eden that was meant to be the epicenter of God's presence. I want you to think your, your life for a second. How many times do we make decisions where God is not the epicenter? And then what usually happens is, is we get down six months down the road, a year down the road, and we go, oh no. And then we cry out for God to come help and bail us out. Right? Here's what I want you to do. When you've got the presence of God in you, make it the center. Make it the epicenter. Make God's presence the epicenter of every single thing that you do. Make Jesus Christ the focus. Make him the only option. Don't make him option three. Don't make him the 911 God that you call when you're stuck. Make him choice one, choice two, choice three, and every other choice. Just make him that. Make him the epicenter. God's presence was to spread throughout the rest of the earth with Adam and Eve exercising authority, rulership, and dominion. That was the original plan of God. That's what he wants. Nothing's changed. But you have to understand this morning, we know something happened, something that changed the whole rules of the game. Number three, sin undermines humanity's mission and the experience of God's presence. I can honestly say this from my own life I'm, because I'm more of an emotional guy and I'm more sensitive to things. I'm very sensitive to the presence of God, but I'm also very sensitive to when I know he's not there. I feel it. Scariest verse in the Old Testament, in Samson, talking about Samson, it says, and the Holy Spirit left him and he didn't know it. Scariest verse in the entire Bible as far as I'm concerned. And David's response is, please, Psalm 51, when he's caught in sin and the prophet Nathan comes and literally reads his mail. And if you're watching Veggie Tales, he actually uses a flannel graph to tell him what he did wrong. It was awesome. It's like, just, just look at the flannel graph, David, and you'll understand everything you did wrong. He looks at it. He's broken. And you know what was his first response? Please, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Don't take your presence from me. Moses, when given the option, you can go that way or you can go without me, God says, how? I'm not going without you. I'm staying here. I don't care about the stubborn people, Lord. <laughs> I'm staying right here because I don't want to go without your presence. It's got to be our heart's cry. God, I'm not going to do that today without your presence. But sin undermines it. 
I'm going to go through the Genesis chapter 3 sin story, and I'm going to just kind of pick it apart for a couple minutes before we kind of come in for a closing. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the women, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? I want you to understand right now, step one in the enemy getting you away from the presence of God is to sow or cast doubt on God's words either his scripture or the word of the Lord over your life. That's step one. Because the moment that you can have trust issues with God, you know what happens when we don't trust somebody in the natural? We start to back away. Right? Because we don't want to get hurt. So we back away. What do we do? We distance relationship. What, do, what happens? We don't see their presence anymore. We don't feel their presence anymore. There's a distance. Now, I, I do believe that in certain cases in our lives that we need to use some boundaries and wisdom, and I think that's good. But I'm just using that as an, as an example for us to understand this morning. It goes on in, in verse 2, and it says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So the second thing is, is if he can't catch you with uh, questioning his words, Scripture, or the word of the Lord over your life, He's actually going to cause you to doubt the goodness of God. Is God really good? Will God really back up what he said? Is God really going to take care of you? Does God really love me? Does God really, you know what I'm saying? These are the, the simple plans. Can I, can I be honest with you this morning? As a pastor, and I've been pastoring for a long time, it's the same stuff. Every person we meet with, it's the same stuff. Nothing's new under the sun. It's like you sit down and people start questioning things. It's like, oh, okay, step one. Yeah, they're questioning the word, questioning the word of the Lord, questioning that over their life. So, step two, you're questioning God's goodness now. And the fact that you love, okay, I see that. It's the same two things. It never goes away. Different package, different bow, you know, different, you know, look, but it's the same thing that's inside the box. Nothing changes. It goes on and it says, verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's what gets us in trouble right away. Well, it looked good. We question God's goodness, and now we determine goodness by our own means. We do this all the time. And what do we do? We back away from the presence of God. Uh, that it was pleasant for the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise. I, this is the one question I've always had reading the scripture. Where in the world does eating a fruit make you wise? Somehow she added to this glowing uh, revelation that she had of herself. Well, not only do I think what I know is good, but I also know what makes me wise. Hmm. Interesting. I was amazed how that, that's just there. So she took it and ate it. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig, trees, or fig leaves together. <laughs> I'd be cool if they sewed fig trees together. Fig trees together. Well, honey, this is kind of hard. I got a lot to walk right now. This is too much for me to bear, Lord. <laughs> Anyhow. Listen, I'm, it's not my fault God made me special. Okay, all right. But think about this. The old plan, or the original plan, was that the creator would be their covering. Because of sin, the new plan means the creation has to cover them. How many times do we allow the created thing to be our source of support and strength rather than the original plan, the creator, his presence being our source of strength and support? We track in here this morning, okay? Verse 8. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Now I want you to know here very quickly that God didn't ask the question because he didn't know where Adam was. God asked the question because Adam didn't know where God was. Because he disconnected from his presence. Step three that I see in my pastoral desk in the last 20 years are people that don't know where God is working and moving in their life because they they started to question the first two. I'm going to question his word. I'm going to question his goodness. Now I have no clue where God is. I feel lost. I feel like, what happened to me? I don't know what's going on. Trust me, same three steps that I've seen all the time. All the time. How do I know? Because I did it myself. Trust me, I could write a book on this. Maybe I will one day. I don't know. But it's good. Sin separates us. Relationship is broken. Separation from God's presence. Isaiah 59 verse 2 literally says that it's our sins that separate us from God. It's something that we have to understand. There's a separation that happens. Look at any kind of falling out in any relationship. There's a separation that happens. It's not good. God's desire is not to have that. Sometimes we do that because we're human. Silliness. But God's desire is not that. Verse 10, it says, So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid. Afraid. I was afraid. First time the word afraid or fear is mentioned in Scripture. What does it come as a direct relation to? Sin. Fear did not even exist before this moment. The original plan, his presence brings peace. The new plan, sin brings fear. I like the other one. I like the, old, the original plan. The original was good. Can you remember when Coke came out with a new Coke? And there was an uproar worldwide. Too bad there wasn't like social media. That would have been crazy. Can you imagine all that? Hashtag new Coke sucks or whatever they're going to say. But they actually can't. They ended up coming back. And they literally said, we're going to bring the old one back and we're going to call it Coke the original. Remember? Original. And, every, and then the whole world rejoiced. It was awesome. Like, you know, Coke almost lost to Pepsi overnight because of this new Coke. Can I say this morning, sometimes the new idea doesn't really work and it's not better than the original. And I think what our heart's desire is as a staff and as a church is to look at our, our lives and to look at what God's doing and say, God, I want your original plan because your plan is the best. We don't think that we can come up with something better and creative that's going to draw people in. There's only one draw. It's called the presence of God. Lord, we desire to praise you, to worship you so that you would draw all men unto yourself. What's, what's the drawing power? His presence. It's not a light show. It's not a sound system. It's not a, 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 like an amazingly good-looking speaker, although Sandra would, Ray would probably fit that. I come in a definite second there, third, fourth, or fifth. But you know what's all good about this whole thing? Is that God doesn't need our stuff. God doesn't need our, 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 all these ideas that we have actually said within church marketing that this is going to bring people in. Do you know what it does? It brings people in, but then five years later, there's no change. And I don't know about you, but I want people in this church that understand the presence of God and extend it. Because then we're going to see a city come to Christ. All the other stuff is just gimmicks. It's never going to bring change. That's my observation of the last 20 years of church life. Anyhow, verse 11. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman did it. The woman that you created. 
He just didn't say the woman made me do it. He said, the woman you created did it. Double whammy. Sorry, can you tell I've got five kids? I'm sorry. Sometimes the only way to get through to them is, you come over here right now. Sometimes it's the only thing. And then the rest of them are usually laughing. Well, it's daddy doing his thing again. <laughs> Listen! You know? Pray for me. The woman you gave me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Lord God said to the woman, what's this you've done? It was the serpent. He looks at Adam and goes, it was her. Looks at Eve, it was him. Could it be Satan? <laughs> so this is what's happening. We play the blame game. Can I say right away? The only way that you can see the presence of God come back as quick as possible is when we look at the situation, we own it, and we take ownership. We take responsibility. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But can I say that a life lived without the presence of God is not worth the pride that it takes to conceal and hold on to all your hurts and anger and issues and sin. It's not worth it. Trust me from a guy that lived the first 22 years of his life the other way and the last of his life the other way. Trust me. It's not worth it. Instead of focusing on God, they focused on creation. The results, sin hinders. We understand that. They became exiles. We know the story. But the fourth thing is this, and this is what I love. God promises to bring his people, or sorry, his presence back to his people. Exodus chapter 29, after making a covenant with Moses, he says, then I will dwell among the Israelites and I will be their God. They will know that I'm their God and who brought them out of Egypt so that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. For those that understand your biblical symbolism, Egypt represents your life before Christ, deliverance from your old life into the promises of God, the promised land representing your life in Christ. And so what it's talking about here is that God's desire from day one has not changed. He's reiterating it through the next covenant, the same that he did to Noah, and the same he did to Abraham, and the same he did to Isaac. He's, re he's literally renewing that covenant, that that's my desire to restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden. That's my heart. That's my desire. Fifth point, and this is my last point, the presence of God is the means and the end of redemption. Can I say this morning, I am so glad that the Bible didn't limit the story of a garden to one garden or one story. There was another garden. There's actually two other gardens that sometimes we don't talk too much about, but I think it's awesome. The first garden was the night before Jesus died, the Garden of Gethsemane, which literally means oil press or olive press, and it literally means pressure, means suffering discomfort, pain. Why? Because Jesus, for the first time of his life, was starting to feel the effects. Not, not necessarily theologically at that moment, but he knew the moment of carrying the weight of the entire world's sin on his back was starting to hit him. The result, Jesus prayed with such intensity that the Bible says literally that his sweat turned into blood. So he was literally sweating blood. But I want to make a little observation that I think was happening as well. 
Now, don't go away from here and saying, thus saith Cameron, this is biblical and this is theological. So I want to say right away, I don't believe this is a theological point you're going to land on for the rest of your life and, and write books on it. But what I, I, I do believe this is happening. Being a social worker in my background, one of the things that I've had to deal with, and for those that have in social work as well, you're going to just resonate with this thought right away, is the concepts of anxiety today. In the last 12, 10, 12, 15 years, the, the, the word anxiety and the word um, worry or fear, all these different things have really become front and center with so much of our culture and so much of our society. Um, there's a variety of reasons for that. There's a lot of studies out there on that. I'm not here to, to necessarily share those studies with you. Some people say the lack of uh, two parents. Some people say a break, broken down family. Some people are saying financial stress. There's so many different reasons why that is the way it is. But what I want to talk to in this moment is the thought that Jesus was probably going through. When I was in my late teens and into my early 20s, I was a children's pastor, and one of the most difficult moments that I ever saw in all of my history of dealing with kids' ministry was never the disruptive kids or the discipline issues that we had to deal with in the class. The most difficult situation that we ever had to deal with was separation anxiety between a parent and a child or a child and a parent. Right? So for the first time in his history... I believe Jesus was having separation anxiety because for the first time in his life, his father had to turn away because he couldn't look on sin. You need to know this morning, Jesus understands anxiety. Separation anxiety at the height of divinity. He knew that when he was on that cross and all of sin was upon him, the father couldn't look because the Bible says that the father cannot look on sin. He's too pure. The Bible says, Habakkuk chapter 113, that his eyes are too pure to look on evil. And yet all the evil and sin of the world was literally falling on Jesus in that moment. But he did it. Why? Because he saw the picture of the other garden while he was praying in the next garden. And I believe with all of his heart, he was saying, I want to restore what humanity lost. And I'm going to pay the price in this garden to restore the first. Most of us think that Jesus died at Calvary. Actually, I believe he died there. Calvary was just the evidence. He died in Gethsemane. He was overwhelmed. He understood Romans 3.23 that says, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. One version says of God's glorious presence. And he looked at it and he went, I got to restore it. This, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. God, I don't want to go through this, but if it means my garden moment will redeem the first one, then I'm going to do it. Because I want my people living with my presence. Every single day. Romans 5.8 says God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Romans 5.17 says for the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, the man who redeemed it in the next garden, Jesus Christ, the Son of God the redeemer of the world. 
You know what's really cool about the story? Is that that wasn't the last garden. Many of us don't know this geographically, and Sandra, she actually confirmed this to me last night because she's been there a couple times, um, that actually at the foot of Golgotha is a garden. So there's a garden called Calvary. And what's interesting is he paid the price in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he rose again and defeated Satan's plan and restored the original plan in the garden called Calvary. Because the tomb was actually in a garden. Interesting. God understands redemption. God understood that when he was declared uh, you know, alive and born, and, and Mary and Joseph were there, they said his name shall be called Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. In between those two gardens, the Garden of Gethsemane and the Garden of Calvary, the Garden of where the tomb was, was a moment on a cross. I'm going to read that moment. Luke 23, verses 39 to 43, says, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, Since you are under the same sentence... We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him and said, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Cross-reference from the Greek word to the original Old Testament Hebrew the exact same word used to describe Eden as paradise. Jesus looked at him and said, I've restored what the first garden lost. If you trust me on this garden, when I resurrect in three days, you're going to be with me in the garden of paradise, heaven. God's plan from day one is heaven on earth, heaven through you. Heaven extended in every single place that you go. Every single place that you go. I felt this week as I was preparing this message and this thought, I felt like some of you would listen to this and go, oh, that sounds good, but you don't know what I've done. And you don't know what I'm doing. And you don't know how far I am from God. And I want to end with one thought, because I think this is significant. Because you have to understand, I'm not standing up here today speaking from a place of perfection. Because my life is a constant story of redemption. I really shouldn't be here. Really, in the natural, I'm unqualified to be your pastor. But you know what qualifies me is my love for Jesus and the fact that he's transformed my life. That's what qualifies me. It's not my smarts. Not anything else. It's Jesus. The first human being to touch Jesus at his first birth was a virgin, his mother, Mary. Pure, innocent, without blemish. She introduced him into the world. The first person to touch Jesus after he resurrected, if we can say his second birth, even though I know that theologically doesn't work, but if we can say after his second birth, was Mary Magdalene. The one who had seven demons cast out of her. The woman caught in sin. The woman so broken, but yet so perfectly healed because the presence of God came 
looked at her straight in the eyes, spoke words of life to her. She received it. She believed it. And Jesus, I believe, is saying today, the presence of God is not just for the Virgin Mary. The presence of God is for the Mary Magdalene's of the world that don't deserve it. In reality, that's all of us. None of us have a story that deserves the presence of God in our lives. But Jesus paid the price. I want to end with one verse. James chapter 1, verse 21 in the Message Bible says, In simple humility, let our gardener, God, landscape you with the word, making a salvation garden in your life. Interestingly enough, when Mary Magdalene came to see the tomb and tried to find Jesus, she mistook Jesus for the gardener. How ironic. What was he doing? He was preparing his Garden of Eden and then presenting it to humanity. Do you want my presence again? Do you want to let go of everything that you've held on to for something so precious, something so amazing, something so life-transforming that your lives will never be the same again? Thank you for taking the time to listen to one of our messages from Impact Church. We hope and trust that this message encouraged you. If you want to find out more information about our church, check us out online at www.impactkingston.com.